Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. You'll hear Peter Gossman, Canadian businessman, on why he's moving his company to the United States. The head of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation told us about the severance pay and pensions for departing members of parliament. Wait till you hear the numbers. From Global News, Stuart Bell on uh, challenging right-wing extremists. And Christian Luprecht the professor from Queen's University and the Royal Military College on the issue of the ISIS leader's deaths and what that may do to recruitment for ISIS. And a lot more coming your way on the podcast today, so hope you enjoy it. Peter Gossman is a business owner and vice president of the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers and Businesses of Canada. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Peter, thank you very much for taking the time. Hi, Roy. How are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? Uh, all right. All right. Uh, I'm uh, you know, anxious to talk about the situation here. I'm trying to make a difference with the coalition. That uh, is part of the uh, the reason I joined. Yeah. Well, we, before we speak about wh- where you're locating much of your or all of your business to in the United States, let's talk about the situation in Canada and specifically Ontario, because you're not you're not in the energy sector in Alberta. A lot of people think it's just pe- just businesses in the energy sector in Alberta that are moving. But um, what, what situations in in Canada and specifically Ontario made your reality as a business owner untenable? Well, first of all, I guarantee you that that nobody is aware that the um, in the manufacturing sector in Ontario that the uh, oil and gas uh, sector is as big as the automotive sector. People don't realize how many Ontario jobs depend on those uh, Alberta jobs as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's something that uh, uh, I guess more recently um, has has come to light with the lack of support. Uh, at the federal level of our of our resource sector, um, our our specific reason for investigating um, our move to the U.S. and we have moved. Um, we we retained some business here in Canada, and we hope to revitalize that if things change. We're hopeful in that respect. But um, the the, uh, the what really drove us to the decision to seriously look south of the border was our energy costs here. The um, green energy disaster, I call it, that uh, spent billions of dollars on on, um, on on programs that sent most of that money out of the country to companies like Siemens and, and Samsung and uh, brought uh, uh, people that benefited from wind and solar from other parts of the world as well, and not Canadian companies in some, in some cases. And when we looked at our, our cost of energy, uh, at the beginning 12 years ago when we were spending for the same amount of power, $15,000 a month to when it peaked at uh, about $55,000 a month for the same, the same usage, we, we said, like, what, what are we doing here? We, you know, and there were many other factors that came in after that, uh, minimum wage, um, you know, Mr. Morneau, who you mentioned earlier, calling business owners tax cheats, that, 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 that uh, you know, that still smarts. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, Ontario Liberals saying that if we uh, we can't absorb the extra cost, we shouldn't be in business. And those are all, uh, comments that, that they, they stick with you for a long time. And, um, you know, I think one of the saddest things that I had to do when we closed up here 
is uh, the last day standing on the floor looking out across all of the machines that are packaged up and ready to move out. And uh, five of the, uh, the um, longest-term employees, five women that worked for us, uh, telling me that they felt sorry for me. Not that they felt sorry they were losing their jobs, but they, they felt sorry for me. Wow. And, and, and really, you know, when you have sympathy like that from, from your employees who, who are like your family, and, and you, you get uh, vilified by the government, by unions, by, you know, uh, all, all this uh, fake attack ads that are out there that uh, are, are trying to demonize people with fiscal, fiscal responsibility, whether it is in government or in the private sector, you know, you can, you can only take it for so long. And, and that has to change. We, we have to have a society that values, that values hard work, that values the, the creation of prosperity, and not just hoping that the government looks after them and, and build a bigger and bigger government. And, and the, the fact is that uh, costs have been going up significantly for businesses, probably right across Canada. And, and as you said, uh, there, and as I mentioned at the beginning of the segment, there just doesn't seem to be an appreciation for the entrepreneurial spirit in Canada, certainly from the current set of liberal governments. Uh, the Ontario governments of, uh, of McGuinty and Wynne um, created some really significant challenges. Uh, the electricity factor was, was one, uh, and that was that's huge. Um, I, I mean, I talked to business operators, uh, a store owner who had modernized everything. I mean, it just uh, the most modern, most efficient equipment you could possibly get, including refrigeration, which he paid for. Um, and he still had to close two-thirds of a store. He went from going, being a full-service uh, uh, supermarket to being essentially a corner store because he couldn't afford the, he couldn't afford the electricity. Yeah, we had the same experience. We we spent countless uh, um, uh, amounts of money on on new equipment that was more energy efficient to reduce our usage. So we ended up producing twice as much with the same amount of electricity, but then having to pay four times as much for that same electricity. And, and and you know, it, it, what what benefit did the people of Ontario get from that? Nothing. There's nothing. We, you nothing. Know, all, they were supposed to create green energy jobs, that there aren't any. They were supposed to, uh, um, you know, be- benefit to business. With it was going to be a boom for Ontario. Instead, it was a, a, a booming debt for Ontario that, that we, we will, I don't know if we'll recover from it in my lifetime. Yeah. Peter, I, I'd like you to stay a little longer. Can you do that? Sure. Okay, let me take a break. And we'll come back with more with uh, Peter Gossman. We'll ask him about uh, what you know, precipitated the move to the United States because the Americans have a different approach and they are approaching Canadian businesses because they know the challenges Canadian businesses are facing and American states are saying, hey, why don't you come here? We'll take care of you. We'll give you a better climate. We'll make it more uh, equitable for you to, to be in business. Just bring the jobs here. And this is what we should be doing in Canada. We should be saying, hey, we're so glad that you're opening a business. We're so glad you're employing that we'll do whatever we can to make it more possible for you, more viable for you, more profitable. Profit isn't a dirty word. Profit creates investment, which creates more jobs. Anyway, we'll come back with Peter Gossman and talk more with Peter about the decision that he's made and, and, uh, and why and how the American state that he's gone to has uh, provided him with the incentive to um, close the doors and, and move to the U.S., even though he hopes to be able to continue to business here in Canada, in the province of Ontario. My guest was talking to us about why 
he moved his business to the United States. Peter Gossman is a business owner, vice president of the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers and Businesses of Canada. So, Peter, uh, the Ontario government, the federal government, um, boosts your costs, and, and then the Ontario government has the gall to say, well, if you can't absorb it, then you shouldn't be in business, or words to that effect. That's the kind of support you need, isn't it? That's just going to really fuel and drive people and make them feel like you have a government that understands you and is committed to you, sure. So on the other side of this of the spectrum, how are the Americans treating you? And the, Ameri- and the Americans come calling, don't they? The Americans knock on your door, call you, do whatever. They want you to come to the United States. And what's their message? So just to be clear, when you say the Ontario government, that was the previous government, not the current government. Right, right, yeah. The, the, uh, so, the... so yeah, and, and there was a point I wanted to make that is a really significant one to do with energy. When, when they started the green energy program, which is really the biggest reason we decided to move, there was something on your bill called a debt retirement charge and a global adjustment charge that eventually just became the global adjustment charge. And it, was, it came in at around 10, 12% of your, of your total bill. It peaked at 75% of the total bill. And when you look at your, I, I want people to go and look at their gas bill at home, their home heating bill, and look at what the carbon tax says. It says 9% of your bill is, is carbon tax t- today. That's going to creep up to something to, to mirror the global adjustment charge. That's going to be a huge component on, on your bill one day. And, and it's the same architects that created that that are doing it now. And yeah. So the, the, as far as the states that have approached us, there was about seven different states that approached us. We started to negotiate with a couple of them. But what's very significant there is that each region is interested in jobs. They have, they have a, a, you know, 10 times our population. They have a lot of people to employ. And the most important thing for everybody's success, including the government's, is that people have jobs and they pay taxes. So they do whatever they have to to, to create a, a situation where businesses are attracted. They, they give you tax abatements on, on property tax. They have education funds, uh, training funds. They have... Uh, grants they have low in, in, interest uh, um, uh, bank rates for for uh, capital equipment. So they know that a country that manufactures is a country that is prosperous. If you, you cannot be a country that just pushes paper around, I think that's a a, a line that Frank Stronach used. Uh, I can uh, imitate the accent if you like, but uh, you can't be paper pushers only. You have to you have to make things to make make a country prosperous. Mm-hmm. Our, our private sector has has gone down in in, in Canada from uh, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, at about forty two percent. It's now down to thirty four percent, and the public sector has has slowly increased over that time. And and you just you know, public sector doesn't create. You mentioned it earlier. They don't create any. They don't create any wealth. They simply spend the money that the private sector gives them, and and that situation yeah. and that that ratio changes to that to that point. You eventually can't sustain it anymore, and you start borrowing money, and that's where we are now. We're borrowing right. way too much money. So, so Peter, so your business is in the United States. What's the experience been like? Uh, it's it's like it's like walking into uh, um, a, a, fam- a family's uh, your, your your relative's house that you haven't seen in years, and they welcome you in, and they cook you a meal, and they they invite you in, and they tell you how glad they are to see you, and they never met us before. These people said to us, the first thing they said to us, you come down here, we'll make you successful. And that's government people talking. That's not, they, they, and, and when, when we met 
my, uh, I have a business, business partner. We went down there. The first meeting we had, 40 people showed up to meet us from, from, from the university, from the, the high schools, from the energy, uh, 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 the energy people, uh, the, the um, uh, various different development funds people that were there, the bank. Everybody came to, 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 talk, to talk to us. When, when I, when the, the um, in Richmond Hill, when, when we were approached by the uh, development people from Richmond Hill, they offered to put an extra bus stop in, in front of our building. We had two bus stops already. That's the difference. And had you stayed in Ontario, what would the prognosis for your business have been? We would have continued to struggle to the point where I don't know if we would have made it or not, to be honest. It, it, I, I don't know where the costs are going now. This carbon tax really worries me because it, it, it has an inflationary effect mm-hmm. that is going to uh, make it very difficult for people to make ends meet. So that puts pressure on wages. That makes the unions go out and, and, and ask for more money that doesn't exist. Uh, and uh, I don't think that uh, the economics uh, would have worked for us. Do you know uh, how aggressively the Americans are pursuing Canadian companies? They know fully well what's going on. They They understand what's happening. They know that uh, companies like yours are looking at, well, maybe we can survive here, maybe we can't, and they're saying, come over here and we'll make, we'll make you prosper. Do you know how aggressively they're just uh, approaching Canadian business across the board? It, to me, uh, you know, I, I can't speak for, for every state and every every company, but they seem to be extremely aggressive because there are so many companies that uh, are, are uh, that I, peers that I have that I've spoken to that say that, yeah, we were approached too by five or six different states, and, and we're, we, we have considered Boy. it. But there is a strong pull to, to, to stay here. It's a, a nationalistic a unity thing that, you know, we were born and raised here. We want to have our business of course. here. But when it comes to survival, you, you, your choices, you, you run out of choices. But looking at, looking at what you've done and, and forced to do, essentially, and, and looking at what other companies are doing, and looking at how aggressively the Americans are pursuing this, you'd think our, our and we have about a minute here, You'd think that our governments at the federal and uh, the provincial level, right across the board, would say, whoa, message sent, message received, we're changing our view and our policy. Apparently not. There's a mindset, and it it starts in our education system, and we're bringing up our young people to believe that they'll be taken care of by somebody else, and it's so dangerous. There, there, There is, you know, people get into politics having no idea about how economies work, they they uh, they think that um, you know money grows on trees and that's uh, and it and and you know that's an old expression but no no I hear it's you a true one I hear you, you know? Peter uh, I I thank you for joining us today I I have an idea for another show that I'd like you to be part of and I'll get in touch with you about that but thanks so much for sharing your story with us um, really appreciate you doing that well thanks for helping giving the coalition a voice and yeah. we really appreciate that All we right. do want to make a difference so yeah. thanks Roy thank you Peter Gossman is uh, the vice president of the um, Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers and Businesses of Canada. Aaron Woodruff joins us, federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. There are 94 MPs who are out of office now, who are defeated or um, yeah, defeated uh, on October the 21st. And they're going to get a whole lot of money from, uh, from taxpayers between now and well, then they die. How much money is, Aaron, thanks for the time, and projected, how much money are they going to get? 
Yeah, for the 94 members of Parliament, Roy, over lifetime, it, it's going to be more than $100 million. Now, that's not all from taxpayers, but the majority uh, of it is. So that is a substantial price tag to pay for these uh, defeated and now retired members of Parliament. So explain to us, please, how the system works. You have to be elected twice or serve six years in order to get a pension. Uh, if that's not the case, then you get severance. How's it set up? Yeah, that's right. So if you serve less than six years, you get severance, which is basically half your income as an MP. So that's about $92,000 for for a regular backbench MP. Um, It's based on half your salary. So if you're you're a cabinet minister or you have other duties that mean your salary is higher, you get a little bit more in severance. For the uh, for the uh, pension, of course, it's based on years of service. So you just had the clip of uh, of um, Ralph Goodale there. He served a long time, more than thirty years as an MP. So he's going to get quite a hefty pension, one hundred and seventy six thousand dollars per year. Uh, so certainly nothing to uh, sneeze at. But uh, the longer you serve, the more you get. Uh, the, the problem that we had long complained about, Roy, was taxpayers were kicking in anywhere from seventeen to twenty bucks for every dollar that MPs themselves are paying in. That has now been fixed. Stephen Harper fixed that uh, before the 2015 election. Um, so it's a lot more even now. But, boy, for a long time there, taxpayers are getting soaked um, quite, quite severely. Just think about that. So for every dollar an MP was putting into his or her pension plan, when they were making anywhere from, hundred, well, depending on when, when they were elected, maybe making $150,000, $170,000 a year. So they're putting in uh, their dedicated amount, and for every buck they put in, we the taxpayers put in 15 to $17. There's no deal like that anywhere else in our society. And what really bothers me, Aaron, is that they're the ones who voted that for themselves. Well, you're right. It's a classic, you know, fox guarding the hen house. And, you know, it, it actually speaks to a broader problem. Obviously, with MPs, it, it's particularly egregious. But the government sector in general, Roy, I mean, there are defined benefit pensions. They're, they're pretty much the dodo bird in the private sector. Mm-hmm. I mean, no one can afford them because they're so expensive. And so one of the reasons we were really happy with this reform is, as people will know, sometimes it's hard in government, unless politicians actually do, do take the action first, take a pay cut first, take a pension cut first, it's really hard to get the broader government uh, sector to follow. So we're really hoping that the fact this is in place will uh, give some confidence to, to the federal government to actually start getting rid of these extremely, I mean, if you think these are expensive, imagine if you've got 100,000 federal government employees. Um, how much those pensions are going to end up costing taxpayers. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just looking at these numbers, uh, and I'm, I'm fixated, of course, on the MP side because you wrote this uh, very interesting story at taxpayer.com. Um, seven, of, seven of them, seven former MPs, will be hauling in more than $100,000 a year in pension income. Uh, and I, I'd said to Ralph Goodell 159, but you, you, you corrected me, and that's $176,000 per year. I mean, under the most um, liberal of circumstances, that doesn't make any sense. Well, yeah, look, uh, I mean, obviously, if you spend 20 or 30 years, you're racking up a lot of years of service. Um, So, I mean, there's another former conservative minister, Rob Nicholson from Niagara Falls. He's going to get 158. But what really starts to add up is, remember, we're talking about paying this for sometimes uh, 30 years or so. Right. Uh, Because believe it or not, the average life, people ask us, why do we calculate to 890? Um, the chief actuary who testified before Parliament, he said that's actually the average age that oh. MPs live to is 90. So if they're retiring or, or being defeated at around 60, which is when they can start collecting, that's 30 years. And if it's, uh, you know, so if you were elected very young, which Ralph Goodale was, 
put in 20, 30 years, you can see it's, it's, it's quite, the, uh, quite the payday even in retirement for you. Well, your release says that 12 MPs are projected to collect more than $3 million each. No, that's, you're absolutely right, because uh, some of them, uh, it, it's interesting, for the MPs that uh, are elected when they're quite young, um, you know, uh, Scott Bryson's not included in that list but uh, because he quit before the election. But these are examples of people, if you're elected in your 20s or 30s and you spend your whole life in government, um, it's, a, it's quite a nice retirement package you get when you're finally elected. Yeah. Look, I have nothing against people getting a fair retirement package or getting a fair pension. But when, when it was as it was for so many years, as you pointed out, for every dollar that they invested, the, uh, the MPs, we gave them 15 to $17.00. That's just off the scale. And I remember interviews that I did with politicians, Aaron, and I'd have a group of them, uh, maybe three from different parties. And the only time they were always in full agreement with one another was when it came to money, when it came to their, their, their right to have this, you know, the pension and, and the salaries. They never disagreed with one another. It was just, they were just really happy people. They were just buddies. And yeah, then we'd get onto an issue that mattered to the rest of us, and they were at each other's throats. Yeah, no surprise, Roy. But no it, you surprise. know, it, it's it's egregious for two reasons. One, uh, I don't mind if they have generous pensions as long as they're paying for it themselves. Exactly. That's fine. Yeah. The other is, what are the rest of us getting these days? You know, for the average Canadian, uh, it is a, just an, uh, it's completely out of sync with what everyone else gets, and I think that is a big problem in this day and age. If you are if you are taking that kind of money from taxpayers, where others can barely save anything at all for themselves, it's yeah. just not going to fly. Look, we uh, we did a program just a couple of weeks ago based on the uh, Ipsos poll that shows that 46% of Canadians are $200 or less away from not being able to pay their bills. And I was taking calls from people who were having real difficulty making ends meet. And it was heartbreaking to hear, absolutely heartbreaking to hear. And, and, and here we have uh, you know, members of parliament who take care of themselves very nicely and getting these exorbitant pensions. It's, it's not something that can be tolerated and extended, and I'm glad Stephen Harper did what he did. Absolutely. He certainly deserves a lot of credit for that. A lot of people don't realize, Roy, that Mr. Harper actually took a personal haircut on his pension to the tune of about $2 million. He willingly gave up $2 million. He could have grandfathered it or have right. it kick in after he left. He left $2 million of taxpayer money on the table. That's rare to see in politics, and we certainly commend him for that. Good talking to you, Aaron. Thanks for the time. Thanks a lot, Roy. Aaron Woodwork, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and its taxpayer... Dot com. No S at the end. Taxpayer.com. It's a story on Global News Today. Uh, it's an exclusive, and it's by Stuart Bell. And the headline is, It's Healing, How Former Extremists Are Working Together to Undermine the Far Right. Stuart Bell is Global News investigative national online journalist and one of the best in this country. He joins us on The Roy Green Show. Stuart, thank you for the time. And your story is about a former al-Qaeda sympathizer who was uh, criminally convicted in this country as well as a former Canadian white supremacist or supremacists uh, with different uh, missions but with the same objective. Can you, first of all, tell us about Jesse Morton and Control-Alt-Delete-Hate? Yeah, Jesse Morton, as you said, is, uh, was a convicted al-Qaeda propagandist. He, he spent almost a decade producing the kind of literature that uh, al-Qaeda um, supporters would circulate to try and recruit young people, to try and get them into the mindset of wanting to join one of these terrorist organizations. Um, but, you know, he was convicted and he, um, he had a, uh, a rethink of his values and his beliefs, and he emerged from prison a different person. And um, 
you know, a lot of people who go through that experience, um, who've been through whatever extremist organizations, a lot of them just, they just want to stay out of the spotlight. They disappear. I've tracked down guys who have you know, moved to Central America and, and changed their names uh, to get away from their past in extremist groups. Um, but he decided to face it um, full on, and he, uh, he's been working with, with other reformed extremists to basically try and undo uh, the damage they did. And uh, so he's part of what he's doing uh, tomorrow. He's already produced a magazine um, a few months ago that went online, and it looked very much like um, like ISIS propaganda, but it was, in fact, uh, a very uh, convincing attack on ISIS ideology. And so tomorrow they're releasing another magazine, which is uh, it's going to be posted on various far-right forums, and it's an, it's an attack on the kind of uh, belief systems and, you know, the kind of slogans that far-right leaders use to try and lure people in. And they, they take a risk when they do this kind of thing. Um, uh, when you look at, uh, you, you write about Jesse Morton and how he was threatened by a former ISIS individual who we've heard about living in Toronto who claims that he killed on behalf of ISIS, and he threatened uh, Jesse Morton. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, um, I think there is a more accepting climate to some degree of of ex-extremists who who want to come out and try and work against uh, the extremist movements that they were part of. It seems to be um, it seems to be a little simpler in some aspects. But on the other hand, we're living in a social media age where some of these people that are coming forward are facing uh, you know a lot of abuse online and social media. Uh, and including threats, like, uh, as you mentioned, Jesse Morton was threatened by a, a guy in living in Toronto who claims to be a former ISIS member who came back from Syria and wasn't arrested and uh, is still living freely in the Toronto area. But uh, after their initial, uh, the initial um, contact where Abu Huzaifa, as he calls himself, uh, threatened to behead Jesse Morton, they, they in fact began to discuss things a little deeper in private messaging and Jesse is trying to um, disabuse this Canadian of the ideals that he appears to still hang on to. And then uh, on the other side of the spectrum, former neo-Nazi Tony McAleer, who's going to be with us later on this hour and has a a new book out, The Cure for Hate. Tony McAleer also is involved and uh, talk to us about about him and and his involvement with, uh, with Jesse Morton. Yeah, well, there's, I mean, he's one of this growing number of Canadians that we're seeing, and, and Americans as well, who are coming forward. Um, they're publicly um, kind of falling on their knees in the sense of, you know, instead of hiding, it would be very easy for them to just disappear and, sure. um, you know, and, and never confront the kind of uh, past that they have had. Uh, Tony McAleer was involved in the white supremacist movement in the 80s, 90s, uh, uh, Wolfgang Drogi and Heritage Front and all those organizations of the 90s that uh, that existed and, and promoted you know, very hateful and violent ideologies. These were very violent organizations that targeted minorities, uh, both physically and um, you know, for, for some kind of psychological and, and ideological ways as well. Um, but he's one of these... Um, individuals who've come forward and 
really believes in uh, the healing power of what he's doing, both not just for himself uh, in terms of kind of atoning for the past, but also the healing that he can help uh, in communities that he once targeted. I mean, they, the Jewish community, minorities, homosexuals, these were targets of, of uh, Mr. McAleer's organizations at one point. And now he's working with these groups to uh, tell his story and also help them get over uh, the damage he caused and confront the ongoing challenges that are posed by the far right. Stuart, what's your sense about uh, their ability to accomplish what they want to accomplish, in fact, get through to people who are still involved with radical thought, radical organizations, and in a way de-radicalize them, or at least start the process? Yeah, well, it's not going to work in everybody. I mean, these organizations exist because they have persuasive abilities to attract people that are vulnerable and to um, to get them sort of locked into this kind of mindset and to make them, to give them a sense of belonging to something bigger than themselves. I mean, that's, the, that's what these extremist groups offer. Uh, so, you know, it's not always going to be successful. But on the other hand, um, what these formers, as they're called, can offer is one, they're kind of role models in the sense that these are all people that were very active and they've been able to leave and still, um, you know, sort of carve out a normal sort of life afterwards. Mm -hmm. I think a big fear for people leaving these organizations is often that um, there's nothing for them, really. Uh, You know, they may have (laughs) tattoos on their bodies that are swastikas or whatever, and they may feel that they're so locked into the movement that there's just no other life afterwards. But people like Tony McAleer and Brad Galloway and Elizabeth Moore, they show that there is really a life after hate. Um, so there's that sense. And there's also, just by um, uh, by being there and, and being available, these uh, people that are maybe having doubts about the organizations they belong to have someone they can talk to that can help coach them and mentor them and help them leave because it's not an easy thing to do um, when your whole identity and your life is based around an ideology um, of an extremist organization it's it's a very hard thing to walk away and all these people will tell you that tony mcclair will tell you that um, and so they can offer guidance and help on just exactly how you do that and the steps you're going to go through the stages you're going to go through and just help them smoothly, more smoothly leave these organizations and get on with their life. Great story, Stuart, but you always provide us with uh, great stories on issues such as this, and uh, they probably have a better-than-even chance, compared to others, maybe even government organizations, to get through to the uh, individuals they want to get through to. Thanks so much for the time. Thanks, Rick. All the best. Stuart Bell. Uh, Global News National Online Journalist, Investigative, and his story is It's Healing, How Former Extremists Are Working Together to Undermine the Far Right. Let's continue with the, uh, with, with the discussion about what's happening with extremist groups globally and in this country as former members of extremist organizations or individuals with extremist positions are now turning in the opposite direction. So what would the impact on recruiting and radicalizing of Western national youth be uh, through the killing of the ISIS leader, al-Baghdadi, and his named successor by U.S. 
Special Forces. Dr. Christian Luprecht is professor in leadership of the Royal Military College and director of the Institute of Intergovernmental Relations in the School of Public Studies um, at Queen's University and Eisenhower Fellow at the NATO Defense College. His most recent book is Public Security in Federal Politics. Christian, um, so what happens to recruiting efforts by ISIS after al-Baghdadi is killed by U.S. Special Forces. is there? Does that create a real dent? Well, it's certainly a liability because you have a reasonably charismatic leader who had been able to attract what somewhere at least upwards of 15,000, possibly as many as 30,000 foreign nationals to come join the cause, both in uh, Syria and Iraq, um, as well as aligning with groups elsewhere in the world. Um, at the same time, once that sort of figure is gone, and of course you no longer have the hold on territory uh, that ISIS had, uh, the inspiration starts to fade. So you, I think we can expect, at least in the short term, uh, that there will be some posturing from ISIS, both in the region and attempts, probably more broadly internationally. Uh, but many parts of ISIS, of course, continue to exist. The counterinsurgency um, continues to prevail in the region because the grievances have not gone away. Uh, the global affiliates and satellites of ISIS continue to persist. And what's often known as ISIS Global, uh, that is to say the online presence uh, that ISIS has, um, uh, continues to uh, persist. And so those media uh, efforts and social media efforts in particular remain unabated. And so we can expect that um, uh, there will continue to be a draw um, by that organization or successor organizations. Now, let me bring this now back to North America and ask you for your thoughts on what's happening with neo-Nazi organizations. That's part of what we're talking about this hour as well. And uh, are, are they growing in size? Do they have, uh, are, are they attracting more and more members? Are they more and more significantly challenging the uh, U.S. Department of Homeland Security? identified them, I defined neo-Nazi groups as a really significant terror threat. So I think that's a really interesting question because the Christchurch attacks, I think, were a real wake-up call, where terrorism had always been treated, at least for the last 20 years or so, as this global transnational phenomenon, whereas I think the right-wing extremism had been treated as sort of these local manifestations. And it is now clear that uh, the right-wing threat is as much a transnational and global threat and ideologically inspired worldwide and has a global following and community um, and the way transnational terrorism or religiously inspired uh, jihadist, salafist, transnational terrorism does. Um, and so this is, of course, what many people who had studied these phenomena had argued for quite some time, but I think now it's, it's coming to the public consciousness that we actually need to treat extremist violence um, as seriously regarding from ir irrespective of which group it originates with or what ideology inspires it, that ultimately um, it's a violation of our laws, uh, it's, it's criminal uh, conduct, um, and so it deserves the same sort of attention regardless of who's um, behind the ideology that's, that's inspiring the violence. And it's far right and far left. Um, indeed, and so I think it's 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 not perhaps particularly useful to um, attribute uh, the inspirations to any one uh, ideology because often the ideology is more a justification for acts that people were going to carry out anyways for any number of reasons. And so it's kind of like 
think of it as learning a language that a language doesn't make much sense to you until you're in the context and you can operationalize it in that cultural broader cultural context and i often think of terrorist violence in the same sort of ways you need to find that community that allows you to uh, to justify to yourself um, why you engage in that particular action because if you think about it from a human nature perspective it's very difficult to actually jump over that shadow and kill other people and so the ability to learn that terrorist language in quotation marks uh, is 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 the more important component rather than what particular ideology uh, is is inspiring or rationalizing the actions that the violent actions uh, you're going to take always good to talk to you thank you so much for the time it's been my pleasure. Thank Take you. care. Dr. Christian Liprecht, Royal Military College and Queen's University, and Eisenhower Fellow at the NATO Defense College. His most recent book is Public Security in Federal Politics. I think we're probably all just a little out of step today, at least those of us who had to change our clocks overnight. It's only an hour and probably shouldn't affect us, but people I've been talking to and emails I've seen and just everybody's saying, I just don't, I'm just not quite there today. Anyway, uh, we're here on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network, and we've been talking about extremism and extremists and speaking with Stuart Bell from Global News, national online journalist, investigative about his book, about how former extremists are working together to undermine uh, extremists. And in uh, this case, it's the, the far-right neo-Nazi organizations, Tony McAleer, who uh, Stuart talked about, from British Columbia, in his teens, joined the skinhead movement and then grew more deeply involved in the White Aryan Resistance Organization, WAR. After 15 years in the movement on the birth of his children, Tony McAleer left the neo-Nazi hate groups. His new book is The Cure for Hate. We had a chance to talk to you, Tony, in August, and the book was coming out, and uh, glad to speak with you now, now that the book is out. So the title is The Cure for Hate, so I'm, I'm deducing from that that your position is that anybody who's engaged in what you used to be engaged in, that's a sickness. Uh, well, it's maybe a, an affliction, perhaps. I think it, I believe that the level to which we dehumanize other human beings is a mere reflection of how internally disconnected and dehumanized we are. Uh, we're simply projecting it onto other people. And uh, we come into the world fully connected and engaged and somewhere along the line, uh, people find themselves um, not connected to themselves anymore. And um, I think the, the secret is is with um, helping people leave these movements is to help them um, reconnect to the to their humanity. Once they do that, they can recognize the humanity in others. So uh, let me back it up just two steps here and ask you, what do individuals who are part of the neo-Nazi world, or the war world that you were part of, what does nationalism, white nationalism, extremism mean to those who are caught up in the movement and who bought in? Well, it's, I mean, the ideology itself is, uh, I mean, it's, um, there's a lot of delusional fantasy when you think about it, but a separate whites-only area, um, and it's this heroic struggle to save the white race from the, the existential threat of white genocide orchestrated by this mysterious cabal of international Jews. That's kind of the, the backdrop of the ideology, but it's, it's, it's not really the ideology itself that draws people in. Uh, and it, it, it's what comes with the ideology. It's a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging, a sense of camaraderie, myself 
I got power when I felt powerless, attention when I felt invisible, and acceptance when I felt unlovable. And when those things are missing in our lives uh, for young people, um, it's a vulnerability that the that the ideology is is able to seduce. And there's lots of young people that that are struggling with identity and and those types of issues. They don't all end up in in extremist groups. You know, some some find addiction or join a gang or there's a whole there's a whole spectrum of antisocial outcomes that are born out of these deficits mm-hmm. um, but you know research shows that the number one correlated factor in the history of someone joining a violent extremist group is childhood trauma and uh, emotional trauma and so when we can heal those things we close the vulnerabilities and once we do that the the ideology doesn't have much to offer not an easy road to take, though, is it? No, no, it's not. It's not uh, difficult. It's not. <clears throat> it's not easy at, at all. And but it's it's doable. And you know, for example, we know what uh, the cure is for obesity. Um, we can overcome it, but it takes work and it takes courage, um, and it, it it takes dedication. But it is possible. The the book that I wrote really is, um, it's a book about hope. Um, you know, we had Life After Hate, we've helped hundreds of people since Charlottesville. We've had over 300 people reach out to us for assistance, and and uh, we've seen people come back from places where they're deemed irredeemable. We believe that no one is, is irredeemable. Can so you, it's, uh, it's hopeful. Can, can you share with us something from your book specifically that, that you know, people need to hear. If we have folks listening who they may have family members who are members of extremist groups, may have parents who are concerned about what their 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 kids are up to. Maybe you have actual members of extremist organizations listening in. What share something with us from the book? Well, this I've got I've got advice in there for parents, particularly if they're um, concerned about a loved loved one. And it's you know it's easier said than done, but. At Life After Hate, we have never concede, never never condemn. While we despise the ideology, we despise the activity, and we never despise the, the, human, the human being. And it's the advice in the book for parents is to you know, create a space that's a safe space for your, your child to question the world around them, to come to you with ideas, and, where, and be genuinely curious as to, as to who they are. And if you can set that kind of relationship with your child early on, um, you'll start to be able to pick up when things are things are going sideways. If you wait until they're spending ten hours a day online in their bedroom and coming home with a fast haircut, you know you've kind of you're in reactive mode. You're trying to it's almost too late then. But um, there's things parents can do to um, to really be be aware and, and connected, and it's it's listening from a place of non-judgment, even though you might judge the ideology. Hmm. Are your children old enough to understand uh, their father's life? And do you worry about your children, all kids, being drawn into the life you were part of? Um, not now. I mean, they're 27 and 28. Okay. And, uh, you know, they're successfully adulted out of the house and off the pay- out of the payroll, as they as they say. Um, no, my My kids know my history, but they know I'm not my history. And, right. Uh, but I end up being very, very open with them. And I've created that environment where 
they're they can come to me about anything and as much as I may not like to hear it um, I provide that safe non-judgmental space when you uh, when you think about the people who are in the organizations you were part of those who are running them those who are part of the groups uh, are you do you have deep concern about what they may be capable of what they may become involved in do we, are we talking about uh, Timothy McVeigh's uh, just waiting to happen yeah I think we're you know we've we've had the mosque shooting in in Quebec uh, we've right. had the synagogue you know shooting in Pittsburgh tree of life and and you know the United States is a little bit different there's more of a culture of violence there but Canada has just as many hate groups per capita as the United States, and and there seems to be uh, an internet mythology which eggs eggs on uh, further acts of violence and greater greater acts of violence. So it is it is potential. I, when I look at these people, I I see them as like wounded four year olds having uh, a temper tantrum in a grown man's body. It helps me understand where they're at uh, in order to work with them. But but I'm never I'm never forgetful of the fact that there's probably nothing more dangerous than a wounded four year old having a temper tantrum in a grown man's body. Mm-hmm. What's the first thing you tell them if, they, if they're looking for help? If let's say they get a copy of the Cure for Violence and they're interested and they they want to ask you questions, where do you how do how do you start? You start. I, it's not what I tell them. It's a, the first thing I start with is to listen. Mm-hmm. You've often got a very legitimate grievance going on in their life, um, and they found a completely illegitimate outlet for that grievance. And often they've never, they feel they've never been heard before. And when we can sit and listen to someone and allow them to be vulnerable in a non-judgmental space, again, we, we ju- absolutely judge the ideology and we absolutely judge the activity. But when we allow someone to be <coughs> vulnerable in, in that non-judgmental space, all the shields and walls and, and ego defenses uh, start to drop and and healing can start to, to happen. The door the door opens to uh, to begin the process of, of getting them out. I think you're gonna reach a lot of people. Because you have the credibility. Your message is uh, is one that they can believe. I think you're gonna reach a lot of people, Tony, and in, in what I you're doing. So. Yeah. I hope so. Thanks for what you're doing. Thank you very much. Tony McAleer, The uh, Cure for Hate is his book. It's uh, a new book. And, uh, yeah, I think he's going to do a lot of good. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. We'll be right back.